0: Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. We're in the third week of this series that we have been in, working our way through the life of the prophet Elijah. We've called this series, A Man Like Us. To see how throughout the life of Elijah, God works, even though Elijah is just a human being. Elijah's a man like us, to use the language of James. He's a human being, even as we are. And yet, God was able to do incredible things through him. And the lesson from that for us is to look at how God uses a human being like Elijah to see how God might use a human being like us. Last week, like Isaac was just sharing for our kids, we looked at the story in 1 Kings 18 of Elijah on Mount Carmel. And if you weren't here last week or you've slept since last Sunday and forgotten, First Kings eighteen tells us about Elijah confronting King Ahab. And by extension confronting the entire nation of Israel. King Ahab worships Baal instead of the Lord. And the nation of Israel has followed him in that practice. So Elijah sets up this contest on Mount Carmel. He says, Well both Uh, offer sacrifices to our gods whichever god shows up that is the one true god and so they do that and the prophets of Baal go through all this effort to get Baal's attention Baal never responds Elijah douses the sacrifice in water completely like Isaac was just sharing he offers this one simple prayer and fire rains down from heaven evaporating the water, the sacrifice, even the stones that the sacrifice was, was offered upon. I don't know how hot fire has to be for that to happen, but it must be pretty hot. And the people are amazed. God has shown up. This is an incredible display. Obviously, uh, the God of Israel is the one true God in all. The world, That all reaches a climax. In 1 Kings eighteen thirty nine. the people see all that happens and they, and they begin chanting. They cry, the Lord, He is God. And at that point, things seem to be going pretty well for Elijah. I mean, picture the scene. You have this massive crowd of people. Before today, they're primarily worshiping Baal. They're counting on him as their hope and security. They see what Elijah does on Mount Carmel, how God shows up in the fire, and they switch sides. They've gone from saying Baal is God to saying the Lord is God I mean, revivals breaking out. Elijah, in his prayer before the sacrifice comes, he, he prays that, that the people of Israel would turn back to God this day, and that seems to be exactly what is happening. This is the most successful day in ministry Elijah has ever experienced as a prophet. And I know that a good portion of you have read the story we're going to be unpacking today before, but if you can, try to think of 1 Kings 18... The story we looked at last week, if it's a movie or it's an episode in a TV show and you've been putting, put in charge of writing the next part of the story, obviously on the heels of First Kings 18, such a high point where God shows up and the people chant that the Lord is God, you want to build off of that. You want to follow up with, with some resolution. You want to show more about how the nation of Israel turns back to God. I mean, picture you're all smart enough, you could write something entertaining off the heels of that, you might write a confession from King Ahab saying that, that he recognizes his idolatry and, and by extension his worship of Baal has caused all of God's people to worship Baal and the problems that that has caused for the nation of Israel and how he feels sorry for that and how he's going to change his ways. Maybe you include a scene where Ahab goes home to the palace. He tells his wife, Queen Jezebel, about what has happened and she recognizes, oh, I've been wrong. I've, I've been worshiping the one the, the, a false god, I need to worship the one true God. You could, you could paint a picture of God's grace and how God shows up to Ahab and Jezebel and says, I understand that, that you've been worshiping a false god, but now you're repenting and that's great. I'm going to show you how, how gracious I am. You could write a pretty good story if you wanted to. But if you've read 1 Kings 19 before, you know that's not the story that we find. In fact, Elijah will go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, both geographically he's going to go from high up on a mountain to out in the desert, but also emotionally from the most successful day he's ever experienced, standing before all of God's people, rebuking them for the fact that they worship other gods, calling them back to the one true God, sitting under a bush, asking God to take his life. The Bible isn't a nice, tidy story with clear plot points taking us to a nice, clean moral at the end of each story. It's a real story. And for that reason, it's a little more complicated. The Bible's not afraid of telling us the lowlights. It isn't afraid of going straight from the highest point of Elijah's life to the lowest. And, And the fact that the Bible's willing to do that tells us a couple of things. First, it's an argument for the reliability of Scripture. If you are making all this up, there's no need to include a story like 1 Kings 19. But secondly, and I think more importantly, it doesn't shy away from telling us the lowlights of the life of Elijah because Elijah has never been the hero of this story. If the point of this section of Scripture that we've been looking at over the course of this series was to tell us, That Elijah was a great guy. Everyone should want to be a great guy, like how Elijah's a great guy. There's no reason to include a story like this one. But if the point of this section of scripture, like every other section of scripture, is to show us who God is and how we are to live in light of who he is, then stories like 1 Kings 19 fall into place because in this chapter we won't see Elijah come off as some great hero. But we will find God meeting Elijah in the midst of his despair and offering him patient reminders of his presence. So with that, let's start reading the story. I'm going to read 1 Kings 19, verses 1 to 9. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, everything we looked at last week, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And he fell down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey's too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. King Ahab was on Mount Carmel, we looked at last week. He saw firsthand God's demonstration of his power. At the end of that chapter, he's, Ahab's directed by Elijah to go back to Jezreel and get ahead of the rain that's coming for the first time in three years. So imagine, Ahab experiences all of that, and then he gets home to report back to his queen, Jezebel, what he has seen. And again, imagine you're writing this story. You might expect this is one of repentance. And Jezebel recognizing, I was wrong, there really is only one true God, and I need to worship him and him alone. But instead, when she gets the news that, that the prophets of Baal that she has had on retainer in the palace are no more, she threatens Elijah. She's fully intending to do to him what he has done to the prophets of Baal. It's, it's not the reaction we expected. So Jezebel doesn't react like we expect, but surely Elijah will. I mean, he's the, one, he's the prophet of God in this scenario. I mean, last week, he stood up in front of the entire nation, in front of the king himself, and declared to everyone who could hear him that they were worshiping a false god. They needed to turn back and worship the God of Israel. You would think someone bold enough to be willing to do that would take a threat on their life in stride. I mean, if we've been reading the story well over the last couple of weeks, if anyone's got the power of God on their side, it's Elijah. So you would think if someone experiencing, if Elijah's experiencing... Threats on his life, we would maybe expect something along the lines of, eh, bring it on if you think your God's that, that powerful. Maybe you can try it. But Elijah runs away. Last week we were up in the northern parts of Israel. We were on Mount Carmel. And Elijah runs all the way to Beersheba in Judah, all the way down in the south of Israel. Elijah's not just gotten out of Dodge, he has run as far away as he can run and still be within the land that God has given his people. But not only does he go to the farthest city away, once he gets to that city, he goes out into the wilderness. He's in hiding. He's off the grid. As far away as he can possibly be. But it's not just a matter of self-preservation. There's frustration. There's maybe what we would even call depression. Depression. In verses 4 and 5, Elijah comes to a broom bush. Your translation might call it a broom tree. It's really kind of somewhere in between the two. He sits down and prays that he might die. Remember what has happened when Elijah prays over the last few chapters. Elijah prays, and fire falls from heaven. Elijah prays, and it rains for the first time in three years. And now prays that he would die, and he falls asleep. Have you ever been under the broom bush? I mean, sure, you haven't probably been there literally. They don't grow in Minnesota. You probably haven't been there under as dramatic of circumstances as Elijah finds himself here, but have you ever been under the broom bush? Maybe everything was going great, and then out of nowhere you're, you're blindsided by news, an accusation, a decision someone else made that affected you, even a threat, somewhat like Elijah receives at the beginning of this story. Have you ever been overcome with grief or despair? You could not conceive of a way out or a way forward. It did not feel like it was worth continuing on, like maybe all the things you had done up to that point that you thought were good things were actually worthless. Have you ever been under the broom bush? Being under the broom bush isn't easy. It's lonely there. It can feel like there's no way out. That you will just spend the rest of your days stuck, longing for the time when God will put an end to it all. It's confusing, under the broom bush. It can feel like no one else has ever been there. No one would ever understood and understand what it feels like, and so it can't be discussed. Most of all, with God. I mean, God's the all-powerful king of the universe. If you complain to him, you're just asking to get squashed. And in the midst of everyone in this story acting differently from how we might expect, God shows up. And he, too, acts in a way that might seem odd. First off, he allows Elijah to rest. Then an angel wakes him up, and and when Elijah wakes up, he's not greeted with a stern lecture. He's greeted with a meal. In fact, it's a meal we've seen before. It's the same meal that God miraculously provided when Elijah was staying with the widow in Zarephath back in chapter 17, and we looked at it in the first week of this series. Now, this is the most basic meal in the ancient world, but at the same time, I don't think that's a coincidence. God could have fed Elijah with whatever he wanted, and he feeds him with the same meal he fed him with last time things were desperate. The last time it seemed like no, there was no hope and no provision and no way forward. Even through the food, Elijah is fed. God is calling him back so that he can show him a way forward. Elijah falls back asleep. The angel of the Lord shows up again. Again, Elijah doesn't wake up to correction, to rebuke. He isn't told, What are you doing? I told you to get back to work provided another meal and he's called on a journey through every step of this passage God is patient as Elijah sits under the broom bush God meets him there and he expresses that by reminding him of how he has been good in the past by reminding Elijah of the past he's able to show him the way forward And Jesus does the same thing. In the last chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus cooks some of his disciples breakfast. This is after Jesus' death and resurrection. It's after Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. And Jesus confronts Peter's denial in this story, just just not in the way that we would expect. The Greek word for charcoal fire is used twice in the New Testament. The first time it's used, it's used to describe the fire Peter is standing next to when he denies that he knows Jesus. The second time it's used is to describe the fire that Jesus is cooking breakfast over for the disciples on the beach. And just like Peter denied Jesus three times, three times in John chapter 21, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And through those questions... Just like here in 1 Kings 19, there is confrontation, but it is confrontation for the sake of restoration. Jesus has more in store for Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, and God has more in store for Elijah here. If you're sitting under the broom bush this morning with Elijah, or if you just need to file this away for when you're there in the future, know that God is patient. He does not abandon us when we sit under the broom bush, but he meets us there so that he might restore us and call us forward. And for Elijah, what is next is a 40-day journey further into the wilderness, all the way to Mount Horeb, which probably doesn't ring any bells for us, but if we were an average Israelite reading this story, and we heard Mount Horeb, our mind would immediately go back to Exodus chapter 3, When Moses is tending the sheep of his father-in-law on Mount Horeb, and while he's there, God shows up in a burning bush and calls Moses to go back to Egypt and lead God's people out of slavery. Our mind might also go to another name for this mountain, Mount Sinai, the place where God revealed himself to his people and gave them the law of how they were to live as his people. And just like how Moses was put in a cleft of the rock on this mountain to experience the presence of God, Elijah is going to experience something similar. So, let's pick up in verse 9 and keep reading. And the word of the Lord came to him, came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now, they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. The Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. He went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous with the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, Elisha son of Shaphat over from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Notice that question from God. What are you doing here? Anytime we come across God asking a question like this in Scripture, it's not because God's confused. God is the one that told Elijah to make this journey. God's not surprised, like if you were traveling out of state and ran into one of your neighbors. This question's an invitation, calling Elijah deeper into the experience he is enduring and to see how God is at work through it. Notice that not only does God ask this question, he asks it twice. And twice, Elijah responds with the exact same words, essentially saying, I've done everything that I can do for you, God. No one has listened to me, and now they want to put me to death. But what's important is not Elijah's complaint, but what God does in between those two questions to Elijah. God shows up. Just maybe not in the way we would expect. I mean, remember how God showed up last week. There was fire raining out of the sky. But this time it's different. There's wind. wind strong enough to tear rocks apart. But God's presence isn't in the wind. There's an earthquake. God's not in the earthquake. There's fire. God is not in the fire. And then there's a gentle whisper. Your translation might say there is a still, small voice. After all the noise, there's quiet. And in that quiet, God speaks. God has not gone anywhere. God did not abandon Elijah after Mount Carmel. God did not abandon Elijah as his life was being threatened by Queen Jezebel. And he has not abandoned you. If you find yourself in the position of Elijah this morning, at the end of your rope, saying to God, I've done everything I can do, and none of it's worked, and, I, and, and no one is listening to me, I, I don't know what I can do anymore, I have nothing left to give. God is not done. God is near, and he's patient, and he wants to remind you of his presence even if that presence might not show up in the way that you would expect. Our world always prioritizes the big and the flashy and the noise. A few weeks ago, I went to one of the Vikings preseason games, and I noticed that there was never any silence. And part of that's because it was a big crowd, but... As soon as any play would end, the public address announcer immediately comes on over the speakers and announces what had happened on the last play and what what the down and distance is for the next play. As soon as the public address announcer stops speaking, a pop song starts playing for about 10 seconds to keep everybody happy and entertained. And as soon as those 10 seconds of whatever song it is ends, uh, some cheer starts over the, the jumbotron and through the speakers to get everyone excited for the play that's about to happen. And that happened between every single play for the entire game. And I think at least part of the reason why that is how our football games happen is because our world cannot handle silence. We crave noise and distraction constantly. And in the midst of a world of noise, we have a God that shows up in the silence. And as God's people... It might not be a bad thing for us to get more used to the silence. More used to taking away distractions so that we can listen to our God. Because when God speaks, He calls Elijah forward. There's still work to do. There are others to do the work alongside. If you're waiting for God's presence with Elijah this morning, God is not done. So let's look at the last few verses of this story and see what God has next for Elijah. Picking up in verse 19, So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. "Let Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Elijah leaves Horeb. He finds Elisha, who must have been pretty well off, given that he's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. I mean, this is the height of farming technology for this time. And without saying a word, Elijah simply comes up, puts his cloak over him, a sign that he is being called to follow in Elijah's footsteps. Elisha asks if before he goes, maybe maybe I could go back and say goodbye to my parents. And Elijah gives him this ambiguous question, what have I done to you? And we could go back and forth and debate about what exactly Elijah is getting at with that question, but the important thing to notice is how Elisha responds. He stops the plowing right where it is. Presumably that means that not the entire field's plowed yet. Someone's going to have to get some more oxen to finish plowing the field. Someone's going to have to get a new plow because he chops up all of his farming equipment. He slaughters all the oxen right on the spot. He has a barbecue. He uses, uses it all to throw a party. But the whole point of it all is God is calling him to leave his home and follow Elijah, and that is what he is doing God's calling both Elijah and Elisha forward. For for Elijah, this is a demonstration that it is not all on him. He is not the only one in Israel who still worships the Lord, like he has said. For Elisha, this is a calling into a life that might not be more comfortable, but it's better. I mean, life's pretty good for Elisha when we meet him in this story. He could have lived out his days as a successful farmer... And if he had, it probably would have been less stressful. I mean, less difficult people to deal with, probably less hard truths to have to deliver. But in spite of that difficulty, God's calling is better. When I look around this room, I see so many people who have been called by God. And they knew full well that God's calling was going to be more difficult It was going to make life more complicated, not less. It would mean less sleep. It would mean less spending money, less time for leisure and more stress, and yet they knew that it was worth it because following God's call is always worth it. There might be some of you this morning that are wrestling with God's call. Maybe you sense God leading you to something that you don't know if you're equipped to handle. Maybe you feel called to serve, but... You're not sure if the extra time and commitment are really worth it. Maybe it's a decision about the future that's going to mean less freedom, not more as you get older. (sighs) Kids, maybe it's a decision about what happens after graduation between one option that seems exciting and and comfortable and pays well and looks impressive, and the other one is where God is leading you. And whatever those decisions might be, I can't stand up here this morning and tell you that it's going to be easy, but I can tell you that following God's calling is worth it because it leads to life with Him. And wherever God calls us, He always goes with us. At no point in this story does God abandon Elijah. At no point in this story are things as hopeless as Elijah thinks they are. Through it all, God is good to His people. Throughout this text, God reminds His people of His goodness. He calls Elijah back to when He's provided in the past to give him confidence that He will provide for him in the future. And the same is true today. God is just as patient with us as we see Him with Elijah in this passage, reminding us in the face of our questions and doubts of His goodness and His presence. And those patient reminders are not just an end in themselves. They are a means to the end of following where God is calling. And that calling is for both Elijah and Elisha in this passage. For Elijah, it's a call to move into what is next. And for Elisha, it is a, to step out in faith for the first time. And in the same way today, God is near and wants to remind us of his goodness to us so that we can trust in him as we move into wherever he's calling us next. Maybe that's a call to trust in him for the first time, to respond in faith to what God's done for us in Christ. Maybe you've been walking with God for some time and you you sense God calling you into something new to trust him no matter what it might be. As Elijah's reminded of God's goodness in this passage, my hope is we would all be reminded of his goodness today. And to to try to experience that, we're going to try something leading into communion that I'll be up front and say it might be uncomfortable and awkward, but I think that's okay. Just like how Elijah hears God's voice in the silence, we're going to have some time of silence leading into communion today. Now here in a moment, the worship team is going to come back up and lead us in a song and prepare us for communion. And normally I would get back up as soon as that's over and and lead us into communion, but today we're going to have some silence. I'll watch the clock. I'll make sure it doesn't last too long. But some time for us to sit and hopefully listen. After a few moments of us sitting in that, I'll get up and pray for us and our servers will come forward and and serve communion for us. But I don't want us to rush past the silence to get to that. I want us to take some time to sit. Just as Elijah does in this passage. Because taking away the distractions and and getting down to just the silence is maybe what we need this morning to be able to hear God speak. Let's pray. God, you are a God who is near. A God who is patient with us and gracious to us, far gracious than we deserve. We thank you that you meet us in the midst of despair. That you comfort us and draw us close to you. And you call us forward into life with you. So God, wherever any of us might be this morning, we pray that you would meet us where we are. That we would listen to you as you speak to us. That you would give us faith to trust in wherever you lead us. So that we can walk faithfully with you. God, you're so good to us and we're grateful for that. Help us to trust in you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.